Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as well as Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, and Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31, are very commonly used to try to prove that uh, we can lose our salvation. Five times in the book of Hebrews, the writer warns his readers about the dangers of abandoning the Christian faith. Uh, three of these passages are often used by those who want to prove that you can lose your salvation. Uh, we can't possibly do a study in depth of the book of Hebrews in the amount of time that we have here. Uh, but we definitely want to address these verses. And I would highly recommend that you study the whole book of reference, uh, book of Hebrews, uh, to reference where these three verse, uh, passages fit into the context of a whole. The biggest danger is taking a ver some verses out of context and trying to prove a theology by it. Uh, you have to make sure that you look at the entire context of the whole Bible, much less the whole book and the whole chapter. And also we need to remember that no verse was written without a specific purpose in mind. Uh, due diligence is necessary uh, to find the original meaning and intent in order to rightly divide the word of truth. And we need to do that. We need to work at it. And the writer of Hebrews doesn't come right out and tell us what the purpose of the book of Hebrews is. So we're take, we take uh, the whole book as a whole and look to see what he's trying to say to see his intent and his purpose. It was written most likely to all probability to help Jewish Christians that were tempted to fall back into Jewish traditions. And this is just based upon the content of the book itself. The author continually emphasizes that the old covenant is obsolete. And that would mean nothing to the Gentile audience. They were never under the Jewish law. Uh, and so the Jewish audience makes much more sense. And not only that, but he uses many references to the Old Testament to prove his points. Uh, with the assumption that these scriptures would carry much greater weight for his readers. Uh, he emphasizes multiple times in the book uh, that, of Hebrews that, uh, a, concern that uh, a concern that he has for his audience... Uh, of them walking away from their dependency on Christ and their return to the old traditions. And after all, many of these Jewish Christians faced very severe persecution and opposition because of their faith. Uh, insults, if nothing else, but also many faced prison, uh, confiscation of their property, loss of their jobs, uh, sometimes even death. And because of this pressure, some began to drift away. And here in this passage, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, after introducing what he's talking about, uh, he says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. So the writer of Hebrews challenges them, uh, pointing out Jesus' superiority over the Old Testament prophets, the angels themselves, and even, Mo uh, even Moses himself. And then he argues for the superiority of Christ's priesthood, over that of Melchizedek and Aaron. Uh, he demonstrates the preeminence of the new covenant over the old covenant, and then challenges his readers to remain faithful in light of those who have gone on before them and follow their example of faith. In the midst of all these arguments, he gives these five warnings to not drift, not fall away from their Christ alone stance in their faith in Christ. And often these warnings are used to try to prove that, they, that, uh, that those who go to a life of sin have lost their salvation. But this is, not, this is obviously not the intent of, his, of the author. Nowhere in Hebrews does he talk about them going into sin. He talks about them going back into Judaism. It doesn't fit the context of the book as a whole or these passages individually. Uh, they were not leaving for a life of sin. 
they were leaving for a stricter, less free, ritualistic view of Judaism. And so let's look at these three warnings and uh, we're going to use, uh, that were used to uh, try to prove that you can lose your salvation. Let's see them in this light. Uh, careful not to take them out of context. So number one, warning number one, he says there's no escape. That's number one. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, uh, he, he says, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Now, the author of Hebrews has just finished a long, uh, a very convincing argument over the superiority of angels. And this uh, concept may be foreign to us, uh, that anyone would think that angels would be better than Jesus. Uh, but the Jews had a great respect for the messengers of God. Uh, now he begins a strong word of warning. Uh, Give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Don't let them slip. Uh, the author of Hebrews says, how much more responsible are we who have Jesus revealed to us than those who heard words spoken by angels. So first, the author speaks of letter A, slipping away. Uh, this Greek word addresses his audience uh, like a teacher who sees a student in their class drifting away from the topic in their mind. He, he doesn't want their focus to be drifted away from the subject matter. In verse 2, the word for uh, is the if you will, or else statement of this passage. And he says, don't drift away or else, basically is what he's saying. And it says, for, he says, pay attention or else. And he compares the consequences of slipping away from the words of angels to the consequences of slipping away from the words and revelation of Jesus Christ himself. In the paraphrase, he says, if you think it was bad for those who ignored God's message when it was communicated through angels, imagine how it's going to be for men and women who ignore a message that comes directly from the Son Himself. The word spoken by angels is generally understood as the law as given on the mountain. The Jews in the early church were very proud of the Mosaic law and was given to them uh, by God and through angels. Galatians 3.19 tells us, Wherefore, then serveth the law, it, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed come should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Acts chapter 7 verse 53 is another reference to this. He says, Who hath received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Even in Deuteronomy there's a reference to this. In Deuteronomy 33 2 where he says, And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from Mount Paran and he came with ten thousands of saints. Uh, from his right hand went a fiery law from them. This word that was translated saints is also translated in other places as angels. Uh, but the author is pointing out, uh, yes, angels were used by God then, but now God has spoken to us and shown us truth through Christ Himself. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, God who, at the very beginning of the book, He says, God who at sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And he is saying that if the law which came by way of angels 
clearly laid out penalties for those who disobeyed the law, the penalty will be much greater for those who disobey the commands of the Son of God. Now, here in this passage, the author is kind of vague. He tells us the punishment is going to be greater, but he doesn't explain what the penalty might be. This has led people to fill in the blanks with what they believe that that penalty will be, including the loss of salvation. If the author knew that this was the penalty, why in the world would he be so vague about something so big as the loss of our salvation? Why would he not tell us, hey, you're going to lose your salvation if you don't do this? If the penalty is so big, why would he not tell us? And secondly, we see that we need to compare apples with apples here, is the way I've worded it. Uh, Again, remember the context of Hebrews here. Remember the whole context. He's challenging his hearers to stay with their practice, the practice of Christianity, not go back to the bondage of the law. If what is meant here, when he compares the slipping away from the law to the slipping away from Christ is loss of salvation then that would mean any violation of the Mosaic law would have always meant salvation, loss of salvation. If it's loss of salvation here, it would be loss of salvation there. If we have to compare apples to apples when we talk about the same thing. But the truth is, the breaking of the Mosaic law in no way jeopardized anyone's eternal security. It never did. It came with punishments, as stated here, a just recompense of reward. But nowhere did the breaking of the law bring loss of salvation. If you broke the Mosaic law, you had a punishment coming. Anywhere from paying a fine to losing your own life, being stoned sometimes. But the recompense of reward was always temporal in nature, never eternal. If you do not gain heaven by keeping the law, you cannot lose heaven by breaking the law. That's not how salvation works. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. It's completely the work of God, not of us. He does it, and He keeps us eternally secure. It'll come with punishment for sure if we break the law, even loss of reward for us as Christians. But it is not that which sends anyone to hell. To interpret these verses as a loss of your salvation is to completely misinterpret the author's point altogether of the whole book. And just as the Old Testament believers were chastened when they drifted away or disobeyed the law, so New Testament believers would be chastened as well, only greater. Because we are responsible for, that, for what came directly from the Son, and we have a greater responsibility. I often tell my kids, to whom much is given, given much is required. It's a Bible verse. To whom much is given, much is required. And I tell them, it's that you have been taught and had the opportunity to grow up in homeschooling in a Christian environment. You have had an opportunity to go to church every time the doors are open, whether it's it's viewed as an opportunity or a chore, either way, uh, you've been taught. And, uh, you know, others who have not been in church have not been taught. And God is going to hold you more responsible for your behavior and your decisions than those who have not been taught. Now, we all have the same thing, whether or not we accept Christ or not is going to be determined whether hell or heaven. But uh, God says, when I teach you something and I give you the truth, you are responsible to follow it. And this, uh, this is the point of this passage here. We have been given so much more. We have been given the revelation of God Himself in the Son. 
we have the perfect revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And those who saw him told us everything there was to, that God wanted to reveal to us. And we have it in, our word, in his word. And we have it all contained in the canon of scriptures. And we are responsible for it. That is the point of this passage. When a believer begins to drift away from the teachings of Christ, it's only a matter of time until the loving hand of God goes to work to get their attention. But this can come through sickness. It can come through accidents. It can come through sermons, through songs. A confrontation from a friend to bring them back to Christ, a, 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 a loved one coming and talk, talking to them, a, a loss of a loved one sometimes, and many times even the natural consequences that come naturally by our sin is used by God to get our attention and bring us back to Him. And let's move forward to the second warning now that is used to try to prove loss of salvation. Warning number two, and we've titled this Falling Away. This is found in Hebrews chapter 6, if you'd like to turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, where you'll read, uh, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. And these verses are used more than any other to support the idea that you could lose your salvation. And reading it out of context like we have just done, uh, you can see why. <laughs> and Because it looks like it's fitting that thing. Uh, but there are three things that I want to point out. First of all, uh, so many times that they take it too far. Letter A, they, it, it's take, it taken too far. I think I worded that wrong. I said takes it too far. Uh, but uh, the, that's where we are here. Uh, at a glance, you could maybe see their point. But unfortunately, for those who do not believe in eternal security, these verses actually take it a step further than they want to believe and that they teach themselves. If these verses are talking about losing our salvation, there's no hope of ever being saved again. The Bible says it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. If these verses are talking about losing your salvation, there's no hope for any of us. And most would not agree with that interpretation, and most don't agree with that interpretation. Realistically, it cannot mean a loss of salvation. Uh, not to mention we can take one passage, we can't take one passage and ignore all others that oppose it. Uh, John 10, verse 27 through 29 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Romans 8, 35 it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nothing shall be able to separate us. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 4 and 5, it says, to inherit an incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you. Verse 5 says, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in thy last time. Over and over and over again, the Bible tells us that we are eternally secure in Christ. Not because of our good works or bad works. Not because we always do right or never do wrong. But because God is faithful and able to keep us. 
And keep in mind that this, uh, the audience of this, this book that we're reading in Hebrews, these were primarily Jewish Christians. The author was not concerned about them falling into a life of sin. That was never the point of this book or any part of this book. The author was not concerned about them falling back into sin, but falling back under the law, turning away from Christ being all that they needed by faith. He wanted them to come to the realization to who Christ was. And over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews, he says, Christ is better, Christ is better, Christ is better. And he uses it and compares it against the angels, the, the law, the, everything, all these things, the prophets and all of these things. He says, Christ is better. That's been his point the entire time. He is the ultimate high priest, the one who uh, has sacrificed all of sin. So this verse is, take it too far if it means loss of salvation. Secondly, uh, we could say not taken far enough. I mean, some interpret these verses as speaking of those who are not saved in the first place. Uh, having had a light of truth given to them, the Holy Spirit convicted their heart. They have tasted of the good word of God, but they did not truly believe. They did not take it far enough. You understand what I'm saying there? Uh, Jesus spoke of this in his parable of the soils. Some seed fell on stony ground and they sprang up but didn't have the depth of soil to really grow and take root. And so they were scorched by the sun because they had no root. Uh, some fell among thorns, but as they sprung up, they were choked out by the thorns. They didn't grow far enough. They didn't believe fully to be saved. They tasted the fruit, but they did not come all the way by faith. They fell away. And those who have done this, it is nearly impossible for them to come back to God by repentance. They've heard that Christ has died for them. They were convinced of it, but did not come by faith. The author likens their coming back to the, this kind of readiness to needing to crucify the Son of God over again in their hearts. It's not impossible they, there are some that do, but God can do all things, amen? But it's difficult. And that, so we see that, that uh, there are people, that's one interpretation, is that they, uh, it's those who have not taken it far enough. Then secondly, thirdly, I label this not taken literally. Another interpretation of this passage relies on the word if uh, in verse 6. It's if they shall fall away. Uh, those that hold to this second interpretation say that the author is giving a hypothetical statement. If a Christian were to fall away, if it were possible for a Christian to fall away, in other words, they would need to crucify Christ again in order to be saved. And knowing that this is impossible, seeing its previous statement in Hebrews 9.28, where he said, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many unto them that look for him, shall, be, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He says he's once offered, and many times through Hebrews, he mentions the once offered and once for all. And the argument uses the absurdity that Christ would have to be cruci crucified again and again and again if this hypothetical statement were true, if it were possible for them to fall away. The only problem with this argument is that the word if is not in the original language. <laughs> Many argue that it's understood in the, in the Greek uh, wording of it, and there's a point there, uh, which is why they translate. Many translations do translate it if. 
uh, but it makes, a, it makes it difficult to prove this on a textual basis and say the Bible, the original says this. However, the point still stands without it, just not as strongly as the first argument. Uh, either way, many passages make it abundantly clear that salvation is eternally secure. So you cannot take one passage out of context and say this proves you can lose your salvation when there are so many others that say you cannot. So we have to look at this passage and say, so since it can't mean this, what does it mean? You understand what I'm saying? And so uh, we have to be very careful. If somebody argues to the fact that this verse proves it, say, well, but you, can't, uh, you cannot contradict the other scriptures. So we have to see what it means. So we have to look to interpret passages in the light of all of scripture and the entire book that we're looking at. So let's look at the third warning that's used. The third warning, no more offering, no more offering. This is found in Hebrews chapter 10, if you'd like to turn there and read it with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. We'll look at this third. I'm only going through three of the five warnings in Hebrews because these are the three that are used to try to prove that we can lose our salvation. The second one, the most common, uh, but the other two have been used as well. The other two five are never used to try to prove this point. They're just warnings to stick with Christ. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 through 31 begins with verse 26 where it says, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye Shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden under the foot of the Son of uh, underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath despite, done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For he, we know that uh, excuse me. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me; I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, isolated from the context, this warning can seem to prove their point. Uh, but again, we have to look at a context of the whole. So let's look at first what I title, Too Late for Forgiveness. Letter A, too, let, too Late for Forgiveness. Assuming just for a moment that they are correct, these verses would lead us to the conclusion that any intentional or willful sin that we commit would, be, would eliminate us from ever being forgiven again. Again, it goes too far from what they're trying to say. It just goes too far. There is no more sacrifice for sins. But the previous prior verses in verses 12 through 14 say, But this man, after he hath, had offered one sacrifice for sins, forever sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies he made his footstool for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified read that verse again for by one offering one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified the prior verses prove that this is a forever thing Jesus is out of the sacrificing business. There is no more sacrifice for sin. It is finished, he said. The next time he comes, he will not come as a sacrifice. He will come as a judge. 
This very verse teaches that those who willfully sin, uh, 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 if this verse, excuse me, if this verse teaches that they, those who willfully sin lose their salvation, then it teaches that they lose their salvation forever. There is no hope for them gaining it back. I have not met any Christians who believe that. Not one. Nobody wants to think, because I messed up, there's no hope for me ever again. Nobody wants to believe that. <laughs> and yet, these verses that they try to prove that we can lose our salvation say directly that. So there's too late for forgiveness is the first part. Let's look at too late for reward. And I believe that this is what it's talking about. And these verses leading up to this warning, the author encourages his audience to follow through with their commitment that they have made to Christ, considering all that Christ has done for them. He says in verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with, uh, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. And then he declares in verse number 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. And then he applies these principles within them. Verse 24, he says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to do good works, for not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much more as the day approaching, as you see the day approaching. The day approaching is the second coming of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ after that. And he challenges them to live a life for Christ, not as one who will... For, uh, who will uh, for, uh, uh, not as one that will forgive them if they sin again and they have to be saved again, but as one that was going to face judgment, one that is going to be judged. Or our eternal security is secure. Our judgment as far as the Lamb's book of life is done. It is written in the Lamb's book of life. We'll never be judged whether or not we say uh, we're going to heaven or whether or hell. That's done. But yet the Bible does speak about another book's that the Bible says that every deed that we have done, whether good or bad, will be put through the fire and will be judged by that. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 15 says this, For we are laborers together with Christ in God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. I have laid, I, another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundations can no man lay that, than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon his foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. He's talking about building your life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And whether, you, you, whether the works that are built into your life, uh, whether it be gold, whether it be silver, whether it be precious stones, or whether it be wood, hay, or stubble. He says, every man's work shall be made manifest. It will be shown. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man work, man's work abide which he hath built thereon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so by fire." He says, these things that will be judged, every deed, whether good or bad, will be judged. And whether you have built your house and built your life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, by the way, that's not been in doubt. The foundation of Jesus Christ has not been in doubt because everyone there at that judgment 
will be saved and will have built the, on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But what we have built upon that foundation after that, whether it be selfish ambition, it's wood, hay, and stubble. Whether it's fleshly desires, it's wood, hay, and stubble. Whether it's sinful acts, it's wood, hay, and stubble. Whether it's done for Christ and worked for Christ through the life of the Holy Spirit, living in our lives, it is gold, silver, and precious stones. And the Bible says that God will reward us once He sends it through the fire. The wood, the hay, the stubble becomes ash all around us. But the wood, gold, silver, and precious stones come through the fire, and we receive our reward based upon that. All of the Christian's actions and deeds will be tried by fire. The fire, not in connection to punishment, but by judgment, judging our actions right, and, uh, uh, right or wrong. He continues and says, If you think it was bad for those who despised the law, imagine how bad it's going to be for those who despised the Son of God and counted the, the blood an unholy thing. Those who rejected God's leading, those who uh, 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 despised what the Son of God wanted us to do. The author is pointing out that our willful sin is a great insult to the shedding of Christ's blood. Imagine... I gave an illustration, I think, last week, or maybe the week before, I'm not sure, about seeing a video about how a guy walked up to a lady that got groceries at the grocery store, and, and uh, he said, I want to pay for your groceries, and uh, he, he got his card out and was going to pay for her groceries there at the checkout, and she said, oh, wait a minute, I want to go get some more. You know, and he just put a smile on his face, and I, I just went on with it. But can you imagine? Boy, the comments were full of people saying, what a jerk. Boy, how greedy. I cannot believe she did that. And the entitlement and all this stuff and going on in the comments. It's no different than us. We have been saved by Jesus Christ and His shed blood. And all of our sins are forgiven from past to present to future. It was all future to Him. He died for all of them. But how arrogant and how entitled it is for us to say, well, I'm forgiven. I might as well just do this sin. No, God says, God, Paul tells the Romans, God forbid that we should continue to live in sin. We are dead to sin. No, we're going to give an account of ourselves to God. We will not face eternal damnation, but we will face judgment and loss. All the works that we have done will be burned to ashes. If we have been, it will have been for nothing. A waste of our three score and ten or more if God is gracious. The believers who live for themselves and give little or no thought to the things of God will find themselves in a very terrifying place. Verse Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31 in this passage it says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we can see although these passages cannot be reconciled with the rest of Scripture to mean that we can lose our salvation. There is much at stake here. We need to take heed to those things which we have learned and not let them slip. We have been given the full revelation of God and Jesus Christ Himself, the Son of God, not by angels. With greater messenger and a greater revelation, comes greater responsibility to follow what we have learned. Christ has paid an awful price 
so that we can have salvation. We need to truly be willing to serve Him with everything that we have in gratitude and thanks for what He's done for us. Fathers, let me speak to you for a moment. Your children are looking at you. Your grandchildren are looking at you. The choices and the priorities that you make will be the choices and priorities that they make. They always say, children take to excess what the parents allow in moderation. Be careful what you do. They're watching. And you will give an account for every time that you lead them astray from God's word in your actions or in your speech or in the things that you love more than God. This third warning is given to us that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. Romans 14, 12 says, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. All the deeds that we have done will be judged by fire. Not the fire of punishment that is settled in the Lamb's book of life, but the fire of judgment. Will you suffer loss or will you be rewarded? It's up to you. What is the priority of your life? Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for it today, Lord. I thank you for these passages of Scripture that remind us of our need to follow you with all of our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in our hearts, Lord, and help us, Father, to see how important it is to read your word, to know what it says, and to follow the leading of your word and the leading of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you help us to be found faithful. Lord, we thank you for our fathers who have lived in uh, a great example to us. And although they have not been perfect, uh, they have uh, sinned just as we do. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to repent, the ability to change our minds and come back to you and follow after faithfulness. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be the kind of example to those around us that we ought to be. Help us to follow your word and follow your Holy Spirit's leading that we may build upon this foundation in our lives gold and silver and precious stones. May we not suffer loss. Many of us will, we all will. There will be some that's the wood, hay, and stubble from times that we have failed you. But may there be a great reward that we can cast at your feet and thank you for all that you've done for us. On that day, nothing will matter more. Nothing will matter more. Our minds are skewed by our sin nature and the sin of this world and the pressures of this world and the lust of our eyes and the lust of our flesh. We don't see clearly how important this is right now. But one day we will. May it not be too late. Pray that you help us to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Let's open our songbooks and let's stand together.